0: Kia ora, welcome to When of Sound, the podcast. Yeah, you're here with Aaron and Dale, and today yeah. we are, we're kicking off uh, our first episode.
1: Yeah, we've got the lovely
0: Chloe Swarbrick
1: with us. Mm. So yeah, cool.
0: well, yeah, I'm really excited about this one. I've known Chloe for a couple of years, and we sort of met through my work. Over the next few weeks, we're gonna be talking about, I guess, what if. So our series is gonna be focused on coming out of COVID-19, what if we had the courage to imagine a different world, a better world than the one that we have now. And so we're gonna be talking to a lot of different people. Today, we're talking about what if we change the way we engaged in politics. And we'll be having other episodes throughout the, the next few weeks dealing with this from different perspectives. And this is just a space for us to think and imagine what a new world could look like.
1: Yeah. I really enjoyed this one with Chloe because she's not someone that I really followed before and someone that I really listened to. But I could tell that she has a passion for her work and for the things she believes in. And I really enjoy that. And she, we <laughs> honestly galvanized me a bit to start thinking about the things I am interested in and the things I believe in, mm. and things that I'd like to see change. So yeah, I hope everyone really enjoys this and is able to get a lot out of it. I reckon right, we go into it.
0: Yeah, and I just want to encourage people as well, like there, there's definitely going to be some people that maybe you haven't engaged with Chloe in the past, maybe because of her political affiliation or some of her sort of views of politics in different ways. Um, maybe, you know, you don't sort of see yourself walking in the same circles as her. Um, but I just really want to encourage you, our phrase here is to listen is to love. And we personally think that if you listen to this episode, there's a lot, regardless of your, wherever you sit, left or right, um, there's a lot you get from it. So yeah, let's, let's get into it. Well, kia ora. Well, you're here with us and we names are us on the podcast. Today we've got a real special guest for you, Chloe Smallbrook. Um, welcome, Chloe. It's really awesome to have you on the show.
2: Kia ora, man. I don't know if I'm a real special guest. We've been uh, um, hanging out for a few years now, but thank you.
0: <laughs> hey, so I mean, before we get into it, maybe it'd be real awesome if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself. Like, how have you got into politics? Yeah, what's led you yeah. here into this space? Uh,
2: a weird, uh, sometimes long, sometimes shorter story. <laughs> uh, I basically everything kind of came to a head end of two thousand fifteen, start of two thousand sixteen, when I was working at this uh, little radio station called ninety five BFM in Tamaki Makoto, Auckland. Uh, just you know, up the top of Auckland University, and there I was hosting this daily current affairs show called The Wire. Mm -hmm. where I got to interview politicians and academics and folks agitating for change Uh, so I was really becoming accustomed to what journalism meant and was thinking about pursuing that as my path I was coming to the end of a law degree off the back of doing a Bachelor of Arts and Philosophy uh, and was working on a few different side projects with my partner at the time Alex who's still a really good mate of mine so we'd gone into fashion I had a menswear label. Uh, We'd also been involved in kind of an online blog with about 40 different contributors around the country producing uh, content trying to elevate. Understanding of and collaboration between those who contribute to culture, to art, and to music, and to ideas, and to theatre, and kind of all of those different creative fields in Auckland in particular. And I was interviewing on BFM, uh, I was also working at Nick of the Woods on K Road, um, helping put together a few different gigs. Uh, and I was, you know, coming to interview all of these candidates for the Auckland Meralty um, who were putting themselves forward, you know, Phil Goff. At Crone, John Polino, Mark Thomas, the top four, as they were known by the mainstream media, asking them about um, you know, what their hopes and dreams were for the future of the city. And all they really wanted to talk to me about was rates. Um, for listeners who might not be accustomed to those, um, if you're a renter, you still have them to pay them through your rent because your landlord pays them. But it's basically like a form of taxation that goes to our local bodies uh, across the country to help fund a lot of the services that we kind of otherwise take for granted, like our rubbish collection, uh, things like maintenance of our streets and our parks and otherwise. And it just really got to me this fact that all these politicians who wanted to lead us weren't necessarily leading with a vision. They were leading with this kind of managerialism of, oh, you know, we'll just keep doing things the way they are. And, You know, I'd always lived in apartments, so never had a phone line, was never polled uh, and had uh, always kind of operated in the gig economy. And I was just like, but hey, what about the people for for whom the system isn't working for? What about all of us? You know, my friends and my whanau, who I didn't necessarily see represented in um, decision making capacity. And I was just getting really frustrated about it and um, complained to my good friend Lillian Hanley, uh, who is now actually the news director at the... And was like, this is absolutely whack. Like how uh, these people who have been interviewing for nearly four years now um, are just genuinely not interested in elevating participation or in changing the game, but instead perpetuating it when it doesn't seem to be working for anyone. And Liliana put up with a lot of rants by this point in time and kind of goes, well, Chloe, if you're going to complain about it, as you always do, um, do something about it. So I went home and I did what any, you know, self respecting millennial would do. I googled how to become Auckland's mayor, uh, and literally and I found out that there were three barriers for someone like me. I had to be over the age of eighteen. I was twenty two at the time, as kinda of became my defining feature. I had to pay two hundred bucks for administrative fees so I could scrape that together and you had to have two people nominate you, which is kinda of like the sanity bar, because um, there's some interesting folks who run for uh, office in local body elections. And I was like, well, we can throw all that together. Um, I mean, why don't we give it a shot? Why don't we just try and add another voice around the table of debate uh, so that these ideas are chucked out there and that people are challenged? Because otherwise, we just tap out and we continue to let all of that stuff continue going on the way that it has. Uh, the general intention was just to get more people to care uh, because, you know, as I ended up putting on the posters that we managed to fundraise enough to get out there, uh, it was kind of just recognition that regardless of whether you engage in politics, politics governs your life. So kind of the notion that this is your city, take it back. And uh, it was really interesting because all my mates came in, pitched in, helped. uh, We did a bunch of gigs with music. Uh, My best friend, Tom, and my mate Casey helped produce these little films which we put out on social media, which became really meaningful for engaging with folks because I was largely ignored by mainstream media unless they wanted to talk about my age. And um, we ended up coming in third place with just less than 30,000 votes, which um, you know all of the usual outlets were just like, whoa, where did that come from? And we were like, we were just on the ground doing the mahi, you know, like folks knew where we were. Um, and after that, just had the weird privilege of the platform, uh, and was kind of like, I can't, I can't leave it here. If I leave it here, then um, I just go back to feeling real reactive and complaining about stuff. So, you know, I tried to put some of that talk into the doing, um, and to kind of just fallen in ever further down the rabbit hole. Since um, now, as of. Uh, you know, the past two and a half years have uh, been really privileged to serve as a Green MP based in Auckland Central.
0: Awesome. Well, wow. Sounds like it's been a bit of an adventure.
2: It's been a wild ride, my man. It's been, yeah, pretty out the gate. But it's also, I think, one of the things people uh, can kind of forget sometimes is that campaigning for change uh, gives you a real sense. It's really hard. It's really hard. Like, forthright is really hard. But... It's also really meaningful, and it gives you a sense of identity and purpose and community, which ultimately is mega beneficial for your mental health and well-being, you know? Nobody ever does anything meaningful alone. You need to build that team.
0: Yeah, awesome. So, like, part of the series, we're trying to imagine, like, what could the world be like, um, you know, pre-COVID-19 as we come out of this space? And, and I guess, you know, in this quarter, we're talking about, I guess, our political engagement and how we can get engaged. I guess we come across a lot of people that are just completely disengaged with the system. You know, they don't believe in it. They don't think that anything they do matters. You know, they just vote the way their parents vote because that's what they've been told. Some, A lot of Rangatahi especially don't even vote, right? You know, why yeah. would they? Why would they care? Because it doesn't seem like anyone in power really cares what they think. I mean, what would it look like if, I guess, young people started to, to vote or people started to vote? Um, how could that change the political landscape?
2: Yeah, that's a really good question, eh? Because I'm often asked, you know, how do we get the young people turning out to vote? And the, the thing is, there's no silver bullet. Mm. You're not going to magically put up this one candidate who's just going to change the game. Because, you know, as I was kind of alluding to before, history doesn't turn on the dime of one person. You know we have this tendency i think particularly in the 21st century to individualize to celebritize and to personalize historical change whether it's things like the civil rights movements or things like the suffrage movement or gay rights all of those things we go that was the one person with the real sick quotes so they were the ones who did stuff and it's like well you know they may have been the most poetic or able to offer the best rhetoric but They were just leading the marches. They were the figureheads. And that stuff is important. The stories that we as a society tell ourselves are critically important. But they would not have been able to change society without the movement and mobilization of hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of regular average folks who just gave their bit. Because that's the tipping point. That's how politics changes. And I think we're real fortunate in a place like Aotearoa in New Zealand. You know, we have a population the size of Melbourne. uh, And we have two degrees of separation. And the example that I use is, you know, I was elected as a 23-year-old high school dropout with tattoos who swears too much. Like, I'm not supposed to be a politician. And if anything, that's the best kind of reason or example of how the system can work. Um, For folks who go, you know, I just don't like my politicians, I don't like politics, it's like... We accept the politics we think we deserve, and actually, the real perversity that occurs when we go, there's some real bad behavior happening over there, therefore I'm tapping out, I'm not gonna engage in it, is that you give them a hall pass to keep being bad guys, keep doing the bad stuff. Instead, the only way you change it is by getting actively involved. If you don't like or trust your politicians, recognize that you can replace them uh, and they are literally there either through your votes or through the votes of other people uh, because you neglected to elect them or because you elected them. So therefore, if you want to replace your local politician, look around at people in your community who you do trust, who you do support and support them in running. It is literally as simple as that. When you're talking about an electorate MP, for example, there's approximately 40,000 people in any given electorate. Uh, if you can galvanize through those connections enough of people in your community in your neighborhoods you change everything and then you just start to scale that up Uh, and I kind of like to think about social change in two broad spheres right we've got the one side of things which is structure and that's kind of the blueprint or the coat hooks for how we facilitate society they're the rules so it's stuff like legislation or law regulation which is largely administered by local government Uh, Funding, taxation, incentives, subsidies, contracts, uh, and all the way through to like treaties at an international level. We talk about that stuff a lot, particularly in the media, but we don't talk anywhere near enough about the fluid uh, kind of gel that holds it all together. And that's culture. And culture is fascinating because culture by definition is about a shared set of values. Frequently, we think that culture is inherent to uh, a certain religion or inherent to an ethnicity or inherent to a geography. And we go, that is what culture is. But actually, culture is a shared set of values, and you can share those values across different ethnicities, across different geographical backgrounds, across different religions. So it's simply about building a broad coalition to change awareness about the kind of structures that we accept and the environment that we want to live in. Different touch points for that are stuff like education. As we all know, education is the best way to build a pathway towards a brighter, more progressive future. Uh, it's also media. Uh, we all think about media as just you know, turning on the TV or getting um, notifications through your app. But the thing about media is it's fundamentally a mediation of reality. When you consider things like natural disasters or you know wars raging seemingly eternally overseas, we don't know any of that stuff firsthand. We trust mediation of reality to tell that story to us so that we're informed and What we find when we start to unpick and critically analyze media And this is not to throw any shade at journalists who are doing a huge amount of mahi under huge amount of stress and competition but there is an inherent bias in any media presentation because of how uh, you know, journalists are under time pressure. They have to choose who they're going to interview. They have to choose what quotes they're going to pull from that interview. And they have to choose what stories to tell. And all of that stuff isn't a conspiracy. It's just fundamentally, again, about our values as a society and the cultural stories that we choose to put center of stage and therefore that all of us are cognizant of and aware of. So that's the kind of stuff that I'm really fascinated in and that's the opportunity that all of us as citizens Have to participate in change is through working together to change our culture, which in turn changes our structures
0: mm. Awesome you, you speak a bit about because I guess the big block is that the way our society is It can't change because this is just the way it is and there's a lot of corridor around the economy and what that means And I've heard you speak a lot about the economy. It's, it's not neutral. What do you mean by that? so
2: The economy uh, is a funny piece of terminology that's often thrown about as though it's something which is inherently right-wing or it's inherently conservative, uh, that it is about, you know, the big players, it is about uh, giving tax breaks to the rich, because supposedly the rich are the ones who are going to give out all of these jobs. But when you look at economic thinking, particularly from some of the leading lights in economic Economics over the past, particularly 20 or 30 years. You even actually look as far back as the dude who is uh, credited as the founder of capitalism, this guy called Adam Smith. So he, funnily enough, was producing all of this stuff as he worked with his mother, uh, sorry, as he lived with his mother, uh, so wasn't paying rent. Uh, so, you know, so much for an understanding of how the world works and how the economy works there. But also, Uh, He didn't believe in the concept of the Limited Liability Company. The Limited Liability Company is a modern contemporary construct which basically says that a group of individuals can come together to form an entity called a business, they can uh, register it to be Limited Liability, which therefore means that they remove themselves from risk of transaction so they can continue to upscale the kinds of business that they are involved in, uh, which in turn means they make more and more risky choices and treat people as commodities. And again, this is just to try and exemplify how far removed we are from the origins of it and how values transcend, particularly when we don't consciously critique them constantly. But the other um, big mythology in our economy is the notion that GDP is like the most important thing? And it's really funny because you watch any of the uh, news, you know, the six o'clock news, or you get, you know, app notifications, push notifications from the Herald or whatever, and you hear about stuff like the Dow Jones or the FTSE or, um, the, you know, all of these different stock indicators and about GDP going up or down. Most people have absolutely no idea what that means. And if I can give you an insight, most politicians have absolutely no idea what that means. But we just somehow take it as gold. As though it's written in stone, that this is like a bad thing if it's going down, this is a great thing if it's going up, and we treat it like it's a deity, like it's God. But the fact is, GDP, when it was invented by this guy called Simon Kuznets in the 1930s, he brought it to US Congress as an economist and was like, hey guys, here's a real good way to measure economic transactions between people in this economy at a mass scale, but God forbid do not use it as a measure of the welfare of our society. 70 years later, we are doing exactly that thing that the guy who created it said we shouldn't do. And the reason he said that is that GDP measures all of the transactions, but it doesn't measure the quality or distribution of them. So the perversity of GDP as a measure of our success is that GDP goes up when there is an oil spill. When there is a natural disaster, when somebody is in a car crash, when somebody gets cancer, because there has to be economic transactions in order to undo that social ill. And this is the thing about the economy being value neutral, is it is ultimately just about transactions. It's not about how much we actually value those transactions, right? And this is the um, kind of classic summary. In this uh, perfect line about how right now we know the cost of everything and the value of nothing. So what I'm real focused on is making sure that we actually treat economics as the social science that it is, was conceptualized as, and is supposed to be, and talk about the value judgments that we make in assuming what is important and what's not.
0: Awesome, yeah another thing that you talk uh, talk a lot about because i mean a lot of these things they the narratives right that are really deep in our concepts and so when we start to try to have these dialogues as a community the protective walls come up because these are the sacred cows of our society Hard. how can we have these corridors in a way that um keeps that door open so we're not mm. just you know slinging hate at each other across you know across yeah the hallway. that's, like, that's you know. a
2: real good question and i think it's It's a really hard dialogue to have right now, particularly when so many people feel as though they're having to justify their humanity, Mm. particularly when you look at places like, you know, where the real heat is right now on the front lines of the resurgence of um, certain elements of the alt-right or white supremacy and where that collides with movements like Black Lives Matter. And the misunderstanding of those movements um, are like Black Lives Matter, where it's not about how uh, not all lives matter. It's actually just about recognizing that there is unnecessary focus on certain demographics and not enough focus on marginalized communities, which means that certain people are seen as expendable. Anyway, complete side point. But um, I think that in order to have meaningful political discussions, we basically have to come to realize, first point, that you need to have time and space in order to engage meaningfully with somebody. Uh, oftentimes, we think that just like having a row in the Facebook comment sections is how you're going to do this. Absolutely not true. <laughs> um, unless you are able to find that environment where folks are willing to engage meaningfully and in depth and in detail. So a really good uh, kind of cachet of research came out uh, subsequent to the 2016 election of Donald Trump and the result of Brexit out of the UK. And what that basically tried to do is explain through sociology and through psychological and political research how we have political discussions again, because those researchers felt that our society had become so polarised. And polarization is problematic for stability, uh, because ultimately it's about communities' capacity to continue working with each other without segregating off into these ideological or um, ethnicity-based or religion-based kind of groups or pockets. It's about the coexistence of a multiplicity of ideas and that exchange of ideas. And it's funnily enough, all this basic stuff, stuff that we teach kids when they're at primary school. The key thing is, most people have never had to explain why they think the way that they do. And this goes back to your point, Aaron, about how uh, most of us, particularly when we first come to doing stuff like voting at the polling booth when we're mm-hmm. 18, uh, take on boards the views of our parents if we haven't necessarily investigated them. Most people have never had to explain why they think the way that they do. Instead, we just continue to move into these bubbles which consistently reinforce our cognitive biases and our cognitive biases reject information Uh, that doesn't reinforce them and we become very antagonistic towards people who we feel are in contention with us so the first thing to do if you want to have a meaningful yarn with someone about politics about anything about life about religion about their values about what they care about about their whanau then you need to ask them why they think the way that they do And you need to genuinely give them time and space to say that without jumping in off the bat to kind of have a crack at them. And just keep following on with the why questions, you know, get to the core of it. Often you'll find that some of the views that we see as the most vehement are actually founded on the basis of fear. They are founded on the basis of of the basis of a need for security to protect one's family or one's community. And when you get to that um, nub of care about community or care for one's family, that's a base that you can build a human bridge on. And when you find those shared values, you open a door. And that's where you can begin to continue opening that door and finding those kind of shared pockets uh, and to emphasize and work with somebody to undo some of those harmful behaviors or attitudes, right? Because the thing is, that often what we see is only the tip of the iceberg, that awful manifestation of bigotry or racism or sexism or whatever you want to call it. But the the base of that iceberg is so many life experiences or things that they've been educated about or told or grown up in, which ultimately inform who we are and how we navigate the world. And you're not going to be able to unpick that by shouting down at someone. Mm,
0: so true. Yeah. One of our, one of our phrases here on When Lambs Are Silent is to listen is to love. And, and that in engaging with people, hearing them first is that pathway. So, yeah, you've articulated that so, so well. You wrote an awesome article really recently stuff. loved it, And we'll link it in, at the bottom of this. Um, I loved that one of your quotes. You said, we will know, you know, at the end of this, that um, a lot of the things that we were told were politically impossible were really just a matter of priority. That's that's a sentiment that is really banging around in the social sector right now as we're seeing miracles happen over the last two weeks. You know, if we're coming out of this, you know, you've got a, a group of people that are maybe thinking, maybe change is possible, how could they be a part of shifting the political priorities? You know, what are the things that besides from you know doing what you've done and getting up into the, you know, that sphere, you know, what could Joe blogs do? Just thinking, mm. hey, I want to do something called James Loggs, or
2: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I reckon um, one of the most important things, um, and it's funny because we think that you kind of, like, to be in politics is to be a politician. That is the biggest myth out there we are all engaged in politics on a daily basis because firstly we care about stuff and secondly we have opinions (laughs) everybody has an opinion on something eh? like if you hear your mate complaining about how much they earn or the cost of their rent or about how far they have to drive or about you know public transport or about the state of the sidewalks Any of that stuff, the quality of our air, of our waterways, all of those things that are determined by political decisions. So you're political if you care about something or you're complaining about something. So the best way to get involved in politics is genuinely just to get involved in having those yarns with people outside of just yourself. Stop talking to your echo chamber. Or if you do wanna to talk to folks who agree with you, then build a bigger base of folks who are willing to take those views and those opinions to road test them, to critically analyze them and to take them apart and build what is effectively, and it's, it sounds like a really gross term, probably because of how associated it's become with corporatization, but build what is effectively a lobbying unit. Lobbying is basically where you utilize the power Traditionally, power is manifest in uh, wealth or in kind of connections, but we have so much untapped power in numbers, particularly in this country. Build a group of people who have a common ask, build a broad coalition of folks who come from a range of different backgrounds who share those cultural values of compassion or whatever, and basically put forward what your solutions are. I think that, um, know and this has been my experience as a politician so take it with a grain of salt man but like so many people understandably are really frustrated with the way that things are but it is so much harder to come up with a solution so if you can work together and talk to all of those folks who know what they're up to and build those solutions and go uh, politicians can't talk about how this is hard anymore Here is exactly how much money we need to build this amount of houses to uh, house our homeless youth in West Auckland or in South Auckland or in Hamilton or in Christchurch. You know, just put forward those solutions and then you have a concrete answer that is really hard to shift away from. Mm. And when you have enough people echoing that, you have a chorus, it becomes impossible to ignore. And I think what this crisis has demonstrated more than anything, and I see this not just in work across the social sector, but in the particular area of mental health as well. Uh, you know, and you know this as well, Aaron. Like when we were out um, west, uh, and I was, you know, coming by LifeWise every other uh, week, um, particularly with regard to substance abuse and addiction, the major underlying drivers are really similar to what they are with mental ill health. The two major ones are isolation and trauma. And we have a society that is more fragmented, more individualized, more isolated, and more traumatized than we have had since the world wars. And we wonder why kids are dealing with immense epidemic levels of poor mental health or are experimenting in really risky behavior looking for that sense of escapism. We only start to undo that when we look to the cause, and the cause is isolation and trauma. So the fix is collective action and building a community. And the best way to build a community is to build a shared kaupapa.
0: Awesome. Hey, that's that's really good stuff. I, before we sort of close, there's I guess there's, there's two groups that we speak to, right? I guess a lot of our kōrero has been directed to people who are empowered enough to, to be thinking about change. There's a whole lot of group of people in our society and um, within our When Lands Were Silence sort of following and Fano that maybe not even in that space, they've been so pushed down by the system that they can't even think about, I guess, stepping up. I guess, what would your kōrero be to them around how they could maybe start even hoping or dreaming about being engaged and, and I guess, dreaming about change?
2: Yeah, hard. I think that's a really good point. And you kind of alluded to it at the beginning of our um, kōrero is that I find it really frustrating When we have politicians or established media entities complaining about how people who have been so marginalized and so disempowered by the political system are choosing not to engage with it, There is a reason that so many people are choosing not to engage with it, and that is because of the erosion of trust that has been undertaken by subsequent governments, subsequent parliaments, subsequent politicians. It didn't happen overnight. You can't pin it on one person, but you can say that a lot of people have been pushed into their corners and their pigeonholes and told that they don't matter. The most revolutionary thing I think that any of us can do is to recognize how much we matter. And that is a really hard thing to do, particularly, and I can empathize with this because, you know, I've got clinical depression, bro. Um, yeah. Is One of the hardest things to do is to recognize the contribution that you can make simply by participating in your community. Yeah. And that's not to say that everybody needs to all of a sudden start dedicating 20 hours a week to, I don't know, planting vegetable patches or you know, doing charity or whatever the case is. And to be perfectly honest with you, I think that the function of charity is a demonstration of a state that's not doing its job properly. Uh, That is demonstration of how we are filling the gaps by not properly functioning a system of taxation or redistribution or whatever, which, you know, funnily enough, I went to church with my grandma all the way until I was about 13 years old. And that is the fundamental teachings within Christianity. You know, those values of compassion, community, redistribution, and looking after those who need it so that all of us can realize and recognize our potential and contribute. So I think it's just radically accepting yourself and the value that you have to bring not only to the world, but to your family, to your friendship group, and leaning into that. what makes you happy and I'm not talking about the stuff that lends you a sense of escapism, right? Because some people might go, oh, you know, um, you know, drinking a beer makes me happy. I'm not talking about that. That, that is not necessarily the thing that is uh, setting your soul alight. That's the thing that's dampening it. Find the thing that enables you to create, to collaborate, to contribute, and to feel that sense of accomplishment. Because that's fundamentally what all of us want. And when you find that, find the people who align with that. And when you've done both of those two things, you've recognized how important you are and you've built a community. And that's the basis of revolutionary politics, my friend.
0: You got it, mate. Those are some beautiful words.
2: <laughs> <laughs> on, bro.
0: Uh. Hey, thanks so much for being on the show today. You know, hopefully we'll have you back sometime. Um, you got have it. a really, really great day. Cheers. So yeah, that was a great interview. I really enjoyed that the conversation there with Chloe. She's got a lot to say, and she's obviously thought like, really deeply through a lot of different things. How, how was that for you, listening to it?
1: Yeah, just, again, I like the passion and the heart she has behind everything. I really enjoyed, um, I guess, the encouragement to engage more with politics. Yeah. She talks about it, governing your life, whether you like it or not. It's so easy to feel like you're just a pebble in this giant stream, and there's nothing you can do. Even, even with voting. I think that's why a lot of young people don't even feel like voting because they just feel like, well, what's the use? What can they do? She's galvanized me to, to, <laughs> to get more involved.
0: Yeah, I think that was a really good point. Like she spoke about how we sometimes think about politics as being in parliament, being a politician. But actually there's so many different ways to be engaged in politics. And yeah, like part of that is actually using the voice that you have. Voting is only one part of that. But like, Engaging with the political system through engaging with your MPs, through you know referendums, through petitions, and I guess a whole bunch of other ways that we can engage in the political system. I think one of the things like that she kept, that keeps coming through, and she didn't say it in this um, conversation today, but she sort of said the spirit of it. She often talks about how she speaks with people who will say, "Hey, my protest is to not vote. You know, I'm opting out of the system." And she's like, well, if you think about that, that's not a great protest because the point of protest is to change something. And when you yeah. don't engage in politics, you just allow someone else to make the decisions unquestioned and unchallenged. And so like, I guess her caught it all in our conversation was, if you don't like the system, be a part of changing it. You know, if you don't, and I like that line that she said, if you don't like your elected officials, realize that you can replace them. Yeah. Yeah, and I think she's proven that that's possible, right? Like, um, yeah, definitely. Which not she came, came third? Yeah, Isn't right. the mural yeah. campaign, like, that's crazy. Sh- I know it shouldn't be about your age, but we sometimes think it is. And for someone her age, like, I think it's. Well, I mean, I mean
1: to- that's a that's a barrier to-, to voters. You know what I mean? They see oh, yeah. you as a, as a young person, and you, well, your opinion often can seem like it doesn't carry much weight.
0: Oh, I remember her going through running for mayor and talking with people about about her, and people saying, hey, actually, she's got some good ideas, but she's too young. You know? Yeah. Well, um, age doesn't have anything to do with competence, you know? But, I mean, it's just, a, I guess, a challenge for us, for all of us, to say, hey, regardless of your age, regardless of where you are, if you think that you're powerless, actually, you know, there's more, you have more to offer than you mm. maybe realize. I, I'm a big believer that, actually, a lot of the societal change that we need in our community it's, it's not coming from the government, it's not coming from politicians. They can only do so much, right? I think a lot of what is dictated is by us, by our action or inaction. I think a lot of what, you know, like people might say, oh, I don't like this about the country or I don't like that. But there's obviously enough people that like it or are comfortable with the way things are, which is why it keeps going the way things go, if, if that sort of makes sense. Yeah, so,
1: so it's, it's I mean? very easy to go with the flow and to just accept things the way mm-hmm. they are because it's easier. We're distracted all the time. We're always busy. We <laughs> go from work, we come home, we you know, some people have kids, you deal with the kids and you you just trying to just you know, sort of relax through the evening just to go back to work the next day and you know, you're distracted with Netflix and
0: games and whatever. It's just really easy just to go with the flow. Mm. I I liked what she like the, that last thing she's just said about how sometimes like the greatest act of resistance is realizing that you matter. Yeah. yeah man, that hit for me. Like I see a lot of people that I I know that feel really disengaged from politics because actually the political system has hurt them and and damaged their lives and and they just don't, they feel powerless, they feel disempowered, right? And I think that message, like you matter, like actually realizing your worth, realizing that you have value is that first Mm -hmm. step of resistance. And sometimes in a world that makes us feel like a commodity. Yeah. She mentioned changing culture through education and I guess that,
1: is it that the young people aren't engaging early enough in politics, that by the time you reach voting
0: age, it's, it's just overwhelming? Mm. Yeah, I think there's something in like, we don't teach politics in school, right? So we yeah. don't understand the political system. But I mean, I don't even know if it's just young people nowadays. I mean, I know a lot of young people that are super engaged politically. And I know a lot of our peers and our elders that aren't. <laughs> there you go. You're gonna vote next election, man. <laughs> yeah, I mean, why is that? Like, why do you feel disengaged yourself? I guess not, not looking into it
1: enough, not actively taking an interest into what everyone is saying. Hard to put a
0: finger on it. Exactly. Not that I don't. Not that I avoid voting, but what did that's that? Exactly ha- what it is. Yeah, like, uh, how then did I guess that messaging that Chloe was putting out there? How did that affect you? Um, as you've been reflecting on it?
1: I mean, just particularly going through this time with the COVID-19 thing, as well as talking with you about the various things that gets discussed mm-hmm. in Lam- when Lamb's are Silent, just starting to think about the things that matter to me, the things that I care about, and how I can put those things into action. Even even now when, when studying and thinking about what I want to go into, every now and then I look at people around me who are suffering, going through through hardship, just like it's all the injustice that goes on all the All over the world, it can feel very much like you're striving for something empty and I want to do something meaningful. Mm
0: -hmm. And just, you know,
1: she makes you (laughs) realise that there's something that you can do. You know, go out there, whether it's something small, find people who also care about the same thing and and get something going.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, one step might just be continuing to engage in the space, you know? Let's continue to have these conversations and start imagining the world that we want. And that's a step, you know, sometimes just starting to think differently and create space to imagine an alternative is Mm. maybe the first step for some people. Yeah. Something that I guess semi-bugs me is
1: when there's a party that, maybe there's a party you like and it's not one of the main two. Mm. Um, A lot of the time, you know, people say you've got a wasted, that's a wasted vote. Um, When really, I mean, is it? You're voting for something you believe in, for a party you believe in more people that do that, the more people can see, okay, look, there's other people that believe in the same thing.
0: You, you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, I, I think that's... Like, I'm not an expert on the MMP system by any means, but I think part of the problem with the MMP right now is that we don't vote as if we have an MMP system, right? We got trapped into this idea of blue and red and just voting those two. <laughs> if we widely voted with the party that most represented our values, the government would, make, would look different. It'd be made up of a different beast, really. Um, yeah. And obviously, there's challenges, and you know, people have their views on on sort of what's a better system. But um, yeah, I guess I agree with that. Like, vote where your values lie. Let the chips fall. If you know what I mean. Um, but like, even mushing it apart, like voting's one thing. But when Chloe talked about being involved, volunteering in your community, being involved in other spaces, like that's all political. Yeah. Like, politics isn't just what happens in Wellington. It's happening in your community right now. You know, it's it's the framework which governs our lives. Um, so we're all engaged in politics in some way or disengaged. Yeah.
1: I mean, if, if, if politicians
0: aren't doing enough
1: to boost engagement, how do we, how do we encourage it?
0: Mm. Yeah, I think we've got to stop relying on our politicians. Yes, they're in positions where they should be encouraging us to be engaged and, and, and cutting down those barriers. But once again, I don't think the change that's going to happen will start in the government. I think the change that we need in our society starts in our communities that we as communities have far more agency and autonomy to make change for ourselves. And we need to be starting to engage in those processes. And it's about, I think, reimagining what our communities look like and how we structure what we do. And, and, and I guess you talked about it as well, reorientation of values. What really matters to us as a community? What matters to us as individuals? What matters to yeah. us as a collective? What, what actually is most important? And we start to get really clear on what those things are. And then we start to make steps to make that known to our elected officials that actually this is what we value hmm. and I think eventually the government will follow because the government will I believe it chases where the votes are really the government's yeah. not going to vo- bring in a bunch of legislation that's going to get it kicked out of office you know they're going to move with the people I think this change starts with the people and we need to be creative around how we start I guess mobilizing ourselves and, and organizing ourselves to make our voices heard
1: yeah I guess I'll our attitude
0: to the level four lockdown shows that we value people, I hope, mm. and we value lives. And, and I think we need to hold this, you know, like this is a moment, this is a real special moment where we're seeing, we're seeing human life valued above a lot of, th- you know, like a lot of things that we thought were important in the past. I think we've mentioned it a couple of times already, the miracles we've seen in the social sector where we've got people housed at a rate we've never done before. We're, we're mobilizing as a city to feed people. It's, it's miraculous. It's amazing. It's great. We need that same energy to continue. Mm-hmm. And that energy will only continue if we, the people, say that that is what we want our elected officials to focus on. If we tell them that actually it is human life that, that we care about far more than anything else, we need to be creative about how we manage our economy. We need to be creative around how we structure our communities. Because at the end of the day, it's unacceptable that any of our farmers live on the street or in inadequate housing or don't have what they need to survive any given week. It's unacceptable that we need food banks, that we need charities to exist. We need to make that really loud and clear. Yeah, for sure. That takes a lot of breaking down of a lot of systems. Yeah. And I guess this brings us back to this series. We're going to be talking about a lot of different topics. We're going to talk about the justice system, how we engage with alcohol and drugs and what we think around that, um, housing, and and more. So, yeah, keep tuned in. And let's keep let's keep imagining this, right? We're going to be obviously putting out some perspectives and, and putting out some voices. And you guys might have some ideas yourselves. So like, let us know. Hit us up in the comments. Send us a message. And let's start talking about this. Let's start imagining what if we had the courage to imagine a different world. Yeah, yeah yeah so anyway i mean a lot to think about on that episode i really enjoyed it yeah i just encourage you guys let us know what you thought rate the podcast share it around if you've got ideas for topics that you would like to hear hit us up and we'll start exploring those that is us thank you yeah. again for listening to when lamb's Are Sar, the podcast we're out Catch gotcha. you
2: Lambs of silent the podcast rate and review us on itunes or wherever you are listening and join the conversation by following us on facebook twitter or instagram the music from this podcast is from the album dissonance by jess jackson and leon shelley listen to more from these artists on spotify